Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 10th, 2019. I am Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. We've got something of a special episode this week in tandem with a really excellent conference put on yesterday just down the road from here in Beverly Hills. It was California Lawyers Women Leadership in Law Conference, a splendid day-long affair our sister publication has put on for a few years now. I hope at least some of you out there listening were able to make it to hear the presentation of several panels full of women who have made it to some of the most prominent legal perches that exist. But if you weren't there, don't worry. We gathered a small cohort, and I should stress the small. I'm joined by three guests on today's show out of dozens of panelists who presented, but our small group is certainly an impressive one, including yesterday's keynote speaker, former Deputy U.S. Attorney General, and briefly, but famously, the acting U.S. Attorney General, Sally Quillen Yates who's a partner now for the firm King and Spalding. You probably know former Deputy Attorney General Yates for her 10 eventful days spent as the head of the Justice Department when she directed her agency not to defend the Trump administration's first travel ban, which was subsequently rewritten, and also when she conveyed to the White House that the president's choice for national security advisor had misled the administration and the FBI about his ties with the Russian government. But you might not know that Ms. Yates was a 30-year veteran of the DOJ and was the first woman to serve as the U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Georgia. You might also not know her grandmother was one of the very first women ever admitted to the Georgia State Bar. So stay tuned as Ms. Yates and I get into all of that. Also talk about her thoughts on the state of gender equity at the lofty levels of the legal profession she has achieved. First, though, I'm happy to bring you two conversations with two other very impressive and trailblazing women in the California legal community. In a few minutes, I'll speak with newly minted appellate justice Helen Bendix from California's Second District Court of Appeal, who was appointed last April after serving on the L.A. Superior Court for just over 20 years. But before that, I'm happy to bring you a conversation I had with Eileen Decker who has had a remarkable career at the heights of law and law enforcement. She recently assumed the role of vice president of the Los Angeles Board of Police Commissioners, a five-member civilian board overseeing the city's police department. Before that, Ms. Decker was the chief prosecutor for the Central District of California, only the fourth woman to hold that position. And earlier, she was LA's deputy mayor for Homeland Security and Public Safety under both our current mayor, Eric Garcetti, and his predecessor, Antonio Villaraigosa. Asked her about all of that and plenty else. In a conversation we had at the conference yesterday. I should note, and you'll hear in just a moment, that the background noise is just slightly louder in this and today's other chats since we were outside the cozy confines of our usual recording studio here at the DJ. But notwithstanding that, the conversation turned out well and hope you enjoyed. Here's my chat with Commissioner Eileen Decker. Commissioner Eileen Decker, Vice President of the Los Angeles Police Commission, thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And also um, belated Congratulations on your new posting. You've been oh, with the commission you. for a few months now. First, uh, you know, how has that been? And what are some of the, the new challenges that you've encountered in, in this new role? Of course. And as you said, I'm new to the commission, so I'm the newest of the five members of the Los Angeles Police Commission. Uh, the other members, other four members, have been on the commission longer. So I'm still learning the process and procedures, but we have public meetings every Tuesday where the public comes to the meeting and tells us uh, their thoughts about the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, but the commission itself establishes the policies for the department and reviews all the uh, categorical uses of force by the police department. And what that essentially means is anytime there uh, is a gunshot or an injury onto an individual, uh, the commission reviews that use of force to determine whether it's in or outside the policies of the LAPD. And of course, over time, we can determine uh, whether the policies are sufficient to address community concerns and how we want our police department to behave on the streets. Uh, so it's been, a, frankly, a sobering experience to uh, learn about all of these cases, to review the videos uh, that have uh, are recorded now uh, in nearly every single use of force, and to evaluate the facts of those cases to determine whether they're in or outside the policies of LAPD. So it's been a very interesting and, frankly, sobering experience. Okay, I mean, certainly you're still sort of new to the job and the role, but um, as you've researched it and, and learned more about it, how do you feel that the, the policies as they exist now in the Los Angeles Police Department um, comport with sort of um, general public safety and public protection? Well, 
Uh, overall, the Los Angeles Police Department is a very uh, cutting-edge department, and I think the commission has is consistently pushing the department in that direction in terms of being on the forefront of new policies and procedures. Um, and I think right now uh, we're very much concerned about ensuring that the department uh, and all the officers uh, use a um, de-escalation, the de- recent de-escalation policy that the commission passed in ensuring that in all situations efforts are made to de-escalate the situation so use of force does not need to be used at all. And um, while I'm new to the commission, I'm not new to the city. I've worked for the city and in law with law enforcement for many years, being the former U.S. attorney of this district, a former AUSA in the district, and former deputy mayor of the city of Los Angeles. So I've worked with police commissioners for many years, was very much aware of their work. Uh, so I'd say my trans- transition as a result of my background has been smooth. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in any new job, you have to take the time to learn it, be sure you understand all the policies, and that you're being fair both to the police officers who are being judged, uh, but also reflecting the needs of the community. And that would be my next question is about that transition or you know, perhaps a, a smooth one being that you have um, you know, filled law enforcement adjacent roles of being a, the chief prosecutor of the Central District of California and a assistant U.S. attorney before that. Um, but nonetheless, you say you know, there, there are certain aspects of the job and things that you have seen now that are sort of sobering and things that you probably were not exposed to as an attorney. I guess uh, my question would be, you know, how much crossover is there between you know, the, the legal departments that prosecute crimes and, and the law enforcement agencies that are sort of the antecedent part of that. I think some folks might sort of view them as distinct and, and separate attorneys dealing with sort of questions of law and reasonable doubt and, and, and police departments less so. So I guess what does sort of ties them together? And do you think there is, you know, to any extent a divide between those two areas? Well, um, law enforcement works within the framework of the law. And uh, law enforcement officers need prosecutors to take their cases to court and to evaluate their cases to determine whether or not they operated within the framework of the law, whether they followed all legal principles that are important for uh, presenting evidence in a courtroom. And in the federal system, uh, which is slightly different than the, the district attorney system, the state system, uh, prosecutors and law enforcement work hand in hand on every single case uh, The because they're are very few cases, relatively speaking, to the state system that go federal. Uh, federal law enforcement want to know that their cases are, are important enough and meet the guidelines of any U.S. attorney's office to proceed. So search warrants, grand jury subpoenas all go through the U.S. attorney's office. So there's a very close working relationship between law enforcement and prosecutors in terms of building these very large and complex federal cases uh, that happen throughout the United States. Uh, but, you know, on the local level, even the more in, with respect to district attorney's offices, even in those uh, cases where they have very large, complex cases, law enforcement is working closely with the prosecutor's office. So they're not as separate um, as many may perceive initially, uh, because law enforcement has to work within the framework of the law. They need to consult with lawyers to determine uh, what they are doing, what the next steps are, do they have sufficient evidence for probable cause? Is there enough evidence to proceed to trial in, under that very heavy burden of beyond a reasonable doubt? So it's a close working relationship, and nevertheless, lawyers are constantly scrutinizing the work of law enforcement, uh, determining whether they acted appropriately, whether their actions can be presented in court uh, in, in any given case. And so in that sense, my role now as uh, member of the police commission evaluating their work on the street is very similar to being a, a prosecutor and evaluating cases and evaluating the work that is being done and of course in the work of the commission determining whether it's within policy so it's it's, it's somewhat of a to me somewhat of a natural continuum if you will okay. um sort of as a brief break in the natural continuum of your prosecution career. As you mentioned, you were the deputy mayor of Los Angeles from 2009 to 2015. Can you just tell me a bit about um, that experience and, and sort of what um, you, roles you discharged and what uh, issues 
were most uh, at the forefront at that time. Sure. As you said, I did it for six years, and I worked under uh, Mayor Villaraigosa and then Mayor Garcetti and had the pleasure of working with two uh, different mayors of Los Angeles. Uh, but with respect to the job itself, it more or less stayed the same through both administrations in that I was responsible uh, to the mayor for the Los Angeles Police Department, the Fire Department, the Emergency Management Department, and with relationships with all the federal law enforcement agencies in ensuring that we were collaborating as appropriate. Uh, so during my tenure, I dealt with uh, so many vastly different issues, everything from uh, the Dorner case where a former LAPD officer was targeting uh LAPD officers and their families and other police officers throughout the Southern California region, a very horrible and tragic case, to helping bring the space shuttle uh, through the streets of Los Angeles uh, to the museum in which it now sits, uh, to going to Sendai, Japan, after the earthquake and tsunami to evaluate their preparation efforts and their cleanup efforts and bring best practices home to Los Angeles. So it was a very diverse type of job, but yet again built on much of my experience in being uh, a former federal prosecutor and being an attorney who could evaluate uh, the workings of the police department, the fire department, and emergency management department. So it did also feel like a natural fit for me, but of course I learned so much about our city, about uh, the hiring practices of the city. I was deputy mayor during fiscal crises. Um, at where we had tremendous cutbacks, but yet was charged with maintaining public safety and ensuring that we had enough resources to protect the city and prepare the city for any natural catastrophe that could happen. So it was uh, certainly uh, a huge learning curve for me when I first started the job, but I nevertheless still felt very comfortable in it because of my legal background and my work with law enforcement previously. And, uh, of course, uh, there are so many great employees in the city of Los Angeles who do a great job every day, and I was able to learn from them as well. Yeah, and listen to the theme of the day, women in leadership. You certainly have uh, discharged a lot of leadership roles that have historically been um, filled by men. I don't know the exact numbers, but not that many women have been the chief prosecutor of the Central District, and I imagine also uh, that same is true for deputy mayor and on the Los Angeles Police Commission. You know, what have you sort of learned of going from these prominent roles, and um, what unique challenges do you think you faced as a woman? What challenges do you think remain? What has gotten you know, improved over time? Well, um, first of all, we're always on the road to improvement, and I'm very... Um, I think we will continue to make great progress in all these areas, as you say, frequently because these uh, the positions I've held are law enforcement heavy jobs traditionally held primarily by men. I was frequently the only woman in the room, and uh, both when I started as a prosecutor, uh, not so much today, uh, but uh, certainly when I became uh, deputy mayor, I was frequently the only woman in the room. But I will say that I was very fortunate to have two great bosses in Mayor Villaraigosa and Mayor Garcetti, who uh, made it very clear that I had the full authority of the mayor in ensuring that um, the city was uh, protected, that the departments were acting appropriately. And both of them were very strong in charging all their departments in hiring more women. And that has made a big difference. And of course, our police chiefs that I worked with, Charlie Beck and now Mike Moore, are very in tune with and supportive of having many more women in the department. In fact, uh, little known fact, the LAPD now is a majority, minority department. And uh, while women only represent about 20% of the department, uh, that is a high number for major police departments in the country. And the police chief is... Um, advocating strongly that we need to quickly get to 25% and then uh, continue to go higher. So I've been very fortunate that the bosses that I have had uh, were very supportive of my efforts to advance women and minorities in every uh, department in the city, so much so that Mayor Garcetti, to his credit, um, after the fiscal crisis and after hiring freezes, uh, there was a particular department that was in great need of resources. But unfortunately, the hiring 
practice that took place resulted in no women or minorities being hired, and he had uh, the strength of character to uh, throw that hiring class out and begin again. And I think that is symbolic of the great commitment that our particular most recent mayors have had to diversity throughout the city and to advancing women in all of these positions, particularly law enforcement, uh, but also within the departments I was in charge of. Um, last one is, you, you, what, I guess, advice might you have for women if they do find themselves in context where they're the only woman in a particular uh, you know, situation? What, what, are your, um, what would your advice be? It can be challenging, uh, certainly, but uh, to be prepared for those meetings, uh, to be the most knowledgeable person about the subject that's going to be discussed in that meeting, and to ensure you have uh, authority when you attend, the, attend those meetings and use the authority. But um, if you come knowledgeable and prepared, you will gain respect because in the end, um, most of us are united in what we envision, say, for our city, uh, greater public safety. And towards that end, the good people in this city will do anything, regardless of whether their leader is a man or a woman, to achieve those goals. But being prepared, being knowledgeable, being thoughtful, listening, all the skills that one would attribute to really just common sense, uh, you will gain quickly uh, credibility and you will gain uh, the respect of the other people in the room and use the authority you have wisely. Uh, and you, with all of that, you will gain the respect and you will get, more importantly, you will get a lot done. And particularly when you're in public service roles, your mission is not to elbow everybody out of the way. Your, el your job is to achieve success for your city. And in my case, it was always public safety. And I don't think anybody ever questioned my objective uh, and knew that I was trying to achieve a very important goal for each mayor I worked for. They respected that. And even when they disagreed, I was ultimately able to convince them, I think because of my legal degree. <laughs> uh, you become very good at persuading people uh, to your position. And, uh, I, and I think with that, uh, anyone can achieve success, even if it, they are a minority in the room. Commissioner Eileen Decker, thanks very much for your time. You're Appreciate welcome. It. Thank you for having me. Okay, before turning to my conversation with Justice Helen Bendix, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of our podcast. So if after you're done listening to this show, you'd like to claim one hour of California CLE credit, it's easy enough to do. Just go to the dailyjournal.com website, find this podcast, then find a link to a short true-false test that once you've taken it and returned a nominal fee, or fairly nominal at least, gets you one hour of that credit. Okay, Helen Bendick spent 20 years on the Los Angeles Superior Court bench before assuming the role of appellate justice on the Second District Court of Appeal last year. Before her judicial career, Justice Bendick served as the general counsel for KCET as partner for the firm Heller, Ehrman, White, and McAuliffe, and of counsel for Gibson Dunn. She was also a visiting professor at UCLA Law, and before that, after graduating from Yale Law School, served as a clerk for another trailblazing woman, Shirley Huffstetler, the Ninth Circuit, who, when appointed, was the only woman on the federal appellate bench. She, Judge Huffstetler, later became the first female secretary of education under President Carter, so safe to say, Justice Bendix has very much lived the theme of yesterday's conference, Women Leadership in Law, and as you'll hear, is both heartened by the progress she's been a part of, but believes more is necessary. Happy to bring you my conversation with her, now recorded yesterday in her chambers. Justice Helen Bendix, thanks very much for taking some time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. And my pleasure. Belated congratulations on your appointment to the Court of Appeal. You've been here now for just over a year. How has the transition been? How have you found the appellate bench? Oh, it's an intellectual paradise. Uh, you have, get to think about a variety of very interesting issues, and you have the time to, to mull them over and to hopefully to produce a, a well-written opinion. I guess what would you say are the principal differences between being on the appellate bench and, and being a trial court judge? You were in the LA Superior Court for about 18 to 20 years, I think, and so now you're here for a year is the, the time that you have to reflect and think about opinions the biggest difference? What are some of the main changes? Um, 
Well, in the LA Superior Court, I wasn't just a trial judge. My last um, few years were spent running and doing uh, mandatory settlement conferences. So let me break down your question into when I was a trial judge sure. and when I was a settlement judge. Let's start with comparing when I was a trial judge. I think the first thing you notice is that you don't have hearings every day. We basically have two public hearings a month. When you're in the trial court, you're you're on every minute, and um, you deal with the public every day. Um, I think in a, the other difference is that you, as an appellate justice, you're quite removed from the consumers of your services, so to speak. I mean, you 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 are literally up and high and away, quite far away from the audience, and you almost rarely see a client. The lawyers are there, but you rarely see a client. You never speak to the lawyers other than in in argument. Um, in a trial court, it's bustling. I mean, it, it's the clients often are there. Their relatives are there. Um, you don't have any informality in the court of appeal, in any sense of that word. Um, as a trial judge, you have much more independence because you don't need it to get another vote. You're it. Uh, that is good news and bad news. Sometimes you wish you could bounce off ideas and, and you have a difficult situation or a difficult issue. Um, and you don't have the luxury of going back and saying, oh, excuse me, I'll come back tomorrow and let you know what I think about it. You can't do that in a busy trial court. As a trial court judge, you have you wear many hats, but at a minimum your obligation is to make sure everyone is heard fairly to create a good record for the Court of Appeal. Um, because there are many cases where I've sat there and said, I know I'm the appetizer for the Court of Appeal. I want to make sure there's a good record so everyone has a chance to make his or her arguments, that my thoughts are well represented so the Court of Appeal isn't guessing what did the trial judge do. Um, so I think that's very important. And, and the interface with the public is very important in the trial court. Um, that's where they see justice. It's really, um, the trial court, I think, has a, probably a bigger role in that respect day to day in terms of how the justice system is perceived. Now, as a settlement judge, that's an interesting comparison. I love being a settlement judge, you know, and I, and I do miss it sometimes. And I miss it for, for in part for what I've described is different about the Court of Appeal. As a settlement judge, I not only met the clients, I was with them in my chambers and talking with them about um, very deep concerns they had about very issues important to them. And I got to do that with the lawyers too. So I really knew them well. I don't have that kind of repartee anymore with lawyers and clients. So I have to say sometimes I miss that. Um, but there's enormous difference in that as a settlement judge, I had no power. I couldn't make one decision. It was the clients that had the power to make the decision. The opposite's true as a as a court of appeal justice. I I do make the decision with the help of my colleagues. So it's, I have a different role in that respect. Um, but it's not as different as people think it is. Being a effective mediator is helpful in working with colleagues. Uh, in terms of coming with a, a just result, a right result, and even where you disagree or have to dissent, to do it in a way that cements relationships, doesn't pull people apart. So, I, yes, there's some differences, but, but they're seeming differences. They have more in common than they have differences. I think all at the root of what all judges or justices do is they have to be faithful to the rule of law. They have to be unbiased. They don't bring an agenda. They have to treat members of the public fairly. The public should feel that they, that it or they had, had, um, a, a, a day in court and that they were respected, uh, their views were respected and heard. How about the types of advocacy or the sort of work on the part of the attorneys? Do you see sort of large differences between the, um, sort of advocacy you see in trial courts as opposed to appellate courts? Let's assume trial judges and, and, Court of Appeal versus Settlement Judges, okay? Sure. Um, you know, when you're in a trial court, there's most often, if you're trying a case, as opposed to motions, 
you got a, you have a jury sitting there. So it's very different because the lawyers are trying to convince the jurors, and they, they hope you stay out of the way, basically. <laughs> I, I think that's probably their perspective. Um, and you're there to rule in evidentiary rulings to make sure that the proceedings are fair um, and that people are comfortable. But the lawyers are often, the center of their attention it would be the jurors and the witnesses. When you're in the court of appeal, you're the center of their attention. And, and But I think, again, from the lawyer's point of view, being perspective as to what the decision makers might be thinking um, and the cues you're, that the lawyers are picking up is a good skill for a lawyer to have, to have that kind of perception. But, for example, let's take in the court of appeal, a good appellate advocate can pick up cues from just by how the questions are being asked, what questions are being asked, what's not being asked by the by the bench. We have an active bench in Division One. We don't just sit there and let people speak for their allotted time and, and don't say anything. We have a, we ask questions and the questions if I were an attorney I'd be listening very carefully to the questions. I'd be listening very carefully who's asking the questions and what are the alliances maybe they're perceiving. Um, because, again, you need two votes. So you have to be perceptive as to what is concerning the court about your position, or what the court likes about your position. That's really more similar than it's different. There's much more in common than there's different. An advocate, to be effective, should be, first of all, very well prepared. It's depressing sometimes when I would feel that I knew the case better than the lawyer. That should never be. Um, you should be well prepared. You should be polite. Let someone finish. Be be civil to opposing counsel. There's no question that judges notice if someone is ill-mannered in a court. Um, whether that person is ill-mannered to staff, ill-mannered to opposing counsel, believe it or not, ill-mannered to the bench. Um, I, when that happens, I would always tell myself, it's not the client. It's not the client. But you'd be surprised how sometimes people can be quite rude or not respectful. And, and and I saw that more in trial court than I've seen that in the court of appeal. But you see it in both places. Um, but I think it, in its essence, a lawyer should be well prepared, should assist the court where the court is expressing, I'm concerned about X or I'm asking a question about X. They're not, the judge isn't doing that to entertain the judge or the audience. It's because the judge needs the information. And so, so be prepared for that. We've largely spoken about uh, demeanor and practice at, uh, you know, before the court and at, at argument. In terms of um, maybe some best practices that attorneys should have in mind or that perhaps you wish they more often had in mind in terms of briefing that's submitted to you, do you have thoughts on, on that? I think that if, you know, I, I can say what I did when I when I would write briefs. I would write a really good introduction. Um, I like to quote Justice Gilbert, who says, "Writing an opinion is not a mystery novel. You should state up front what 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 the reader can expect moving forward." I feel the same way about a brief. Um, I I think the judge should know right from the first few paragraphs what's the issue, what kind of case it is, and why the trial court was wrong, or why the trial court was right, and 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 here are the here are the three or four reasons why. Um, I think that that's really important. You should be getting the judge's attention from the beginning, especially if it's a long brief. If it's meandering, the judge can't figure out what the real issue is here, then you failed. Um, that's true in the trial and the the court of appeal. I think in the court of appeal, it's very important to designate the record carefully. Um, if something's missing from our record and it's important, you could lose your the consideration of the argument because you don't have the record with which to apply the argument. And that happens more often than I would like to, than I expected. I'm surprised how often people um, don't bring up the sufficient record. Um, let's see what else. We don't need string sites on, on what's the standard of review. Just tell us what the standard of review is, but I don't need two pages on it. Um, I don't like purple prose. I don't, you know, like, you know, um, insulting the trial court. It's, it's really not necessary. It's demeaning. I think some attorneys 
um, really do wonder about just to the extent the briefing helps their case or the argument determines the case. I think some folks think justices really have made up their mind when they get to oral argument. Is that the case? Um, I'm not sure if I'm a minority view in this. I, I think oral argument is very important. There may be others who, who think that it's less important. You obviously have to write good briefs. Um, briefing is very important, in part because of the 90-day rule. You know, we only have, once a case is argued, submit it. We only have 90 days to write an opinion. And writing an opinion is takes a lot of time, especially when there might be discordant views on it, and we're still working among ourselves and figuring out what, what's the right answer. So... It's not talking out of school for, to say that the judges have thought long and hard before argument about the case and sometimes have draft opinions. Um, but I find that when I go to argument, sometimes I miss something or I got it completely, completely wrong. Now, I'm not going to say that happens 80% of the time. I don't want to, but it's not 1% either. Um, so argument can be very important. There have been times when I've listened to argument and I've, I've reversed myself, my thinking on it. Um, it's not the majority of times, but it's important. And it's important to the process. It's important to the clients that they've, that, that they've been heard by, by human beings. So I think there's a lot of process value to argument as well as the substance. And, and So I'm of the school that argument is important. I'm not sure everyone thinks that. So the event at which you'll be speaking today, the Daily Journal's um, Women in Leadership event, um, your panel focuses on women in the judiciary. What uh, sort of topics do you think will be discussed? What sort of ideas do you have about the unique challenges that might be faced either now or as you've been coming up in the judiciary by women particularly? Do you think the California judiciary is... Um, has changed in that Ooh, regard? There's so many questions there. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um well, let's let's start with very briefly the first question. I I, I believe that the organizers of the conference have are trying to address all of the the realm of of issues that are implicit in your questions. Um, so let's take my panel. One issue will be you know um, the challenges women of color face now. When I started out, because I'm pro- I, I don't know the ages of everyone on our panel, but I'm sure I'm at the I'm on the back nine <laughs> compared to others. Let's put it that way. Uh, so I've I've I started in a world where my first appearance was not in, as a lawyer was 99 men and myself. So and where the I clerked for the only federal court of appeal woman judge that existed at the time. Um, so. My perspective might be different from some of my panel members who had more female mentors, who had, who didn't feel different, so different, you know, and, and who, who weren't viewed by others as so different, which is the bigger problem. You know, I, I felt that once, you know, at that time, when I was a, a new lawyer, I did not look my age, I had long blonde hair, they assumed they had nothing between my ears, I think, when people would see me which was a bad assumption, I like to think. So we will be discussing that difference, the difference in perspective between, as, as you just asked in your question, now versus then. Um, one question we'll be talking about is whether the bench, you know, fa- um, uh, professional family balance, which has to be a discussion if you're talking about, you know, women are the only ones who can have babies. You know, I, I know that people... Uh, don't like seeing it as a women's issue, that it's it certainly is a a, a family issue, and um, but there is a reality that we're the ones who have to have the babies, you know, and and we have a shorter time than men do, in which to have children. Um, so sometimes our child-rearing times are exactly at the time when we have to promote to be partners, have to be considered to be. Um, the the head administrator in a public office, or you know the whole promotion thing, same with respect to aspirations to the bench. So one issue is going to be: is it easier to balance family life in in the context of private practice or the the practice? Let's say for in in a public service like a public defender's office, 
or a DA's office versus being on the bench. I suspect our panel will have very different views on that because it, for many reasons, and I'll say from my perspective, because I started at a time when it was just so hard. I was, I was always the first. And it had to prove that women can do it and can, can, ha- can, ba- can be partners in law firms or can be um, general counsels of companies and still have a good family life. Um, I think there'll be very different perspectives. That will be one topic. Um, we're going to be discussing who helped us, you know, who, 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 you know, what, what were the um, influences on our life to where we are as judges. I don't know what, what perspectives people will have on that, um, but I'd be very interested to hear that answer. Because remember, when I was in law school, and when I started out, there were very few female faces there. And I, I, and I suspect very few of color. I will suspect that. I think that California, to answer your question, was way, is way ahead of where I went to, went to law school. And that's, and I remember when I first taught at UCLA, seeing so many women in the class, I, I was blown away. I, it was just, I, I, I hadn't experienced that. Uh, before, when I walked down the halls of, of, of mosque, one of my first appearances, because my, my first career was really in Washington, D.C., but when we, when we moved out here, I remember being amazed to see how different the faces of lawyers looked. I mean, they were people of, of all colors. There were a lot of women there, people wearing pantsuits. I mean, it, was just, it looked so different. Um, so I think California was ahead of the East Coast. It's, I hope I'm answering all you. You asked so many questions. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry. I packed yeah. them all in there. I mean, so it, do you, is it heartening? Do you feel like um, there remains work to be done, equality balances to be achieved in, I guess, particularly in California? Do you think there were a, a place where you find sort of satisfactory in terms of gender balance? Well, I don't believe in complacency. So um, are you asking on the bench or you're asking off the bench? I suppose either if you have different thoughts on them, but you're speaking about the bench, so you know, particularly about in the court. I, I think that the bench is a world of opportunity for women. We have governors who have sought to diversify the bench, and I think you see the product of that by just walking into any courthouse, and and and, and our courthouse here in particular. So, yes, it's gotten a lot better. Um, I don't feel that my being a female negatively affects me in my work on the Court of Appeal at all. Um, And I'm very grateful for all my colleagues. Um, Let's talk about the trial bench. I feel that since I don't look like I'm out of central casting for a judge, I feel some male lawyers tried things with me they wouldn't dare have tried with a six foot two male staring down at them from the bench i'm 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 confident of that conclusion um and for a female judge to establish authority in the courtroom can be more difficult than from a man who looks at a central cast and if people don't appreciate that then they need to be more perceptive, I think. It, it happens. It still happens, unfortunately. Um, and then I think, it, it, I can't speak as a person of color, but I suspect that is even more true for men and women of color. Um, practice is a... I haven't been in practice for more than 20 years, so I don't really can't speak from current experience. I think there's a lot more... More progress to be had. I can only speak about law firms which you don't own yourself. I mean, if someone's in a solo practice, I can't, or, or in solo, or in almost solo practice with friends, I can't speak about that. I think while the billable hour is still the economic model, and bringing in business is how you advance in a firm, women will always be at an advantage. Most women will be at a disadvantage because we can only have children at the time we're associates in law firms, basically. Um, I'm not saying that's always true. Some women can have kids at 45, but it's, 
it's it's a, just a biological reality that it's hard to do your three thousand billable hours when you have two kids at home and you have a a partner and it doesn't have to be a male but you have a partner who's working outside the home too. It's a very difficult life, um, and I'm not sure. And then, and then bringing in business—that's getting better because there's more female general counsel and so forth. But from my experience, which is old, you know, it's 20 years old, I still think it was harder for a general counsel of a firm to give his—his—it was often a his, sometimes a hers—bet um, the company case to a female. I know that's a gross generalization, and it can, and what I've said can isn't always true. But I think there's more, there's still progress to be made there because the economic model is very difficult. If you're if you have a working partner, and your um, and billable hours and bringing business is is the is the way we want to advance I'm not saying that that that's a bad system, but it can be tougher on on moms. And then I'm going to add to it, it can be tougher on people who don't, women who don't have a family, but there's still these latent biases about giving your bet the company case to to a female. You certainly navigated it well, just as Helen Bendix. Thanks very much for being on our mm-hmm. show. I really do appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Last guest gave the keynote address at yesterday's conference and needs a little introduction, at least it seems safe to assume, for listeners of a legal podcast. Sally Quillen Yates was the 36th Deputy U.S. Attorney General, only the second woman to hold that role, and she served as head of the DOJ for a brief stint two years ago before her very prominent assertion of agency independence led to her dismissal. She's also the first woman to serve as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. I'm happy to bring you now my conversation with Sally Yates. Sally Yates, former Acting Attorney General, thanks very much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So you were the first U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Um, In keeping sort of with the family tradition, as I understand you had a grandmother who was one of the first women in the state to pass the Georgia Bar. Um, Tell me a bit about her. And also, I understand she had a hard time getting hired on as a proper attorney after even, you know, going through all that and, and being one of the first women to... Sure. You know, I come from a long line of lawyers. Everybody in my family is either a lawyer or a Methodist preacher, it seems like. So my father, both grandfathers, uncles, cousins, and my grandmother. And this was back in the day. This is, you know, the 1930s in rural Georgia. And at that time, you didn't have to go to law school to become a lawyer. You could essentially read law and then take the bar exam. Um, essentially study under another attorney. And she did that, and she passed the bar. But, you know, they're not hiring a lot of lady lawyers um, in rural Georgia back at that time. And so she ended up being the legal secretary to my grandfather and later my father and uncle. And actually, she was smarter than all three of them probably put together. So that had to be an incredibly frustrating experience for her. Fast forward several decades, and you are confirmed to be the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District in 2010, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to what extent does it factor into you know, your, your experience of starting that role to know you're the first woman to do it? And, and what are some of the things on the way to that role that you think are obstacles that you particularly were able to clear that you faced uniquely as a woman that you were able to get through? Yeah, well, when I started in criminal prosecution, it was, I'll date myself now, it was the late 80s. And this is a very male-dominated profession. The, the legal profession is to begin with, and particularly on the law enforcement side. And so we had women who were criminal prosecutors, not on the civil side, but not that many. So I started out initially working with, you know, sort of the older, I wouldn't say grizzled in a bad way, but, you know, the, the law enforcement agents that have been around for a long time. And you kind of got used to being, if not the only, one of the few women in the room. Um, when you fast forward and, and then sort of in, in the time when I became the first female U.S. attorney, you know, I never thought of it in terms of doing my job as a female prosecutor or female U.S. attorney, but I will say I was conscious of the fact that I was first in that regard and so that people's judgments about a woman's ability to be able to, to fill that role 
could be defined, for better or worse, um, by how I performed in that. And so you feel a responsibility beyond just your own responsibility to do a good job, but in some ways that you're sort of laying some groundwork for for other women, and you want to make sure that you have have done done right by them. So I would be remiss having the acting attorney general uh, formulate uh, here without asking this. A couple of DOJ-related questions and topical issues. Um, you wrote the Time 100 profile for Robert Mueller, the special mm-hmm. counsel who has now completed his task of investigating certain events over the past couple of years. What generally are your thoughts about the special counsel Mueller and I guess mm-hmm. just the, the role that he has filled and, and the task that he has discharged now? Well, first let me say, I'm not buddies with Bob Mueller. I don't want to make it sound like we have a relationship that we don't. I'm professionally acquainted with, with Bob and have known him for many, many years in that regard. And, you know, he is the quintessential Boy Scout straight arrow that you read about and that you would think that he is. You know, he, I never really knew or thought about any political affiliation that, that Bob Mueller had because that wasn't anything that ever factored in to the work that he did. And, you know, he was part of DOJ. He was a prosecutor. He was a U.S. attorney. He was head of the criminal division, obviously director of the FBI. And he's a guy who really is governed by a sense of duty that I think goes back to the time that he volunteered to serve in Vietnam. Um, at a time, not something that he had to do. He actually had to rehab his knee for a year to be able to volunteer to serve in Vietnam. And I think that kind of tells you what you need to know about him. And a lot of people will project onto him or onto that investigation an outcome that they might want it to have. And what I've always felt is that I had complete trust. He would call it right down the middle. He would call it as he saw it, and he would lay out the facts as they are without any spin or or objective in that. And I think that's what he did. Speaking of spins, the public has now seen the vast majority of the Mueller report. It was previewed for them by the current attorney general. And I'm not going to ask you to, you know, sort of judge his or grade his role in the um, release, but I am curious to, for your view as to, I guess, just how much of a political defender an attorney general can or should be. I think folks generally in the public expect to some extent the attorney general and the president will sort of be on the same page. Um but what is your view as to how those roles are separated? Well, certainly the attorney general serves the president, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with discussions about broad policy objectives um, and priorities, those kinds of things. But at least since Watergate, both Democrat and Republican administrations alike have really zealously guarded a wall between the Department of Justice and the White House on any criminal investigation or prosecution. And certainly the need for that separation is at its absolute zenith when you're talking about an investigation of the president himself. And so I think it's really essential that the attorney general respect that he is not the representative of the president, but the representative of the people. And beyond that, that the public have confidence that the Attorney General is representing the people of the United States. Okay, maybe just a couple last ones tying back into the theme mm-hmm. of the day. So we've, um, you know, compared to the experience that your grandmother had yeah. in Georgia, we've come a long way. So mm-hmm. I mean, what are your thoughts on the place that we are at now? What obstacles do you think still remain um, in terms of gender equity in the legal profession um, that you know, might still be, be hurdles for women out there? Well, I think you're right. I think we have come a long way, certainly from my grandmother's time. You know, I really wish that she could be around today to be able to see, um, to see this conference, for example, today, to see where women in the law are now. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we try to pretend that, you know, check, we're all done now. Everything is equal. Uh, it, it's not. There are lots of women in the legal profession but there still are not a whole lot of women in what you might call positions of power, whether that's in partnerships and law firms or particularly senior partners in law firms, um, general counsel and companies, um, or positions like that within the government that are at the very top positions. We're better, but there's, there's more to come. And, you know, in 
terms of obstacles that we face, there are certainly some explicit conscious biases, but I think, you know, there's some unconscious bias there as well. Um, that not just women encounter, but I think any, you know, any underrepresented group, um, can encounter. And so I think, um, continuing to make people more aware of those biases and, and, and working to combat those is really important. Okay, last one, you know, if you could proffer some advice to someone in one of those underrepresented groups or to women um, that might find themselves faced by some of those obstacles that you mentioned, what uh, sort of advice would you give them? Well, you know, everybody's different. I think part of the advice I would give is I remember when I was coming up, women, I'm really making myself sound old now, aren't I? But women felt like they had to fit a certain mold in order to be successful. And so um, you felt like you had to be sort of the super aggressive, really edgy woman. Well, if that's not who you are, that's not who you should try to pretend to be. I think one thing that has gotten better now is that there are lots of different styles that can ultimately lead to success. And the most important thing that a woman can do at this point is to be her authentic self, whoever she actually is, to be comfortable in her own skin. Sally Yates, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And it's a show for May 10th, 2019. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much again to all three of my guests, Commissioner Eileen Decker, Justice Helen Bendix, and former Deputy U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. First, if you'd like one hour of California CLA credit, you can easily enough get it. Just go to our site at dailyjournal.com, find this podcast, then find a short true-false test attached to it. Take that and remit the corresponding fee in one hour can be yours. And also, don't forget to find us on iTunes or the podcast app or the various streaming avenues through which you get this sort of media. You can find us there. Just search for Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. You should be able to find us doing so and subscribing, clicking, rating, reviewing is all very helpful. Let's other folks find the program. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.